Hey, good evening. I'm a little late on the draw here getting the podcast going today. I had intended on getting going earlier, but the holiday and everything going on, just things are all in a bit of a state of flux at the moment. So I'm glad to get to it now, though. And uh, if you got your Bible, we're going to go ahead and pick up in Acts chapter 5, where we left off last time. And um, if you recall, uh, where we left off last time was an episode where God demonstrated the importance of purity in the church. Uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira in the midst of a uh, of a season in the church where people were selling property and giving the money to the disciples so they could help meet the needs of those uh, in the in the body that were in need and such. It was this beautiful uh, act of self-giving on the part of the church. And in the midst of that, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds, which was not wrong for them to do, except for the fact that they told the apostles and they made it, made it known that they had given all of the proceeds. In other words, they were being hypocritical. They wanted to be seen as being more generous than they actually were being. And Peter called them out. Certainly the, God had given him a, a word of knowledge in that moment to know what was going on. And Peter spoke to it and uh, condemned the hypocrisy there, uh, accusing Ananias and Sapphira of lying independently as he met with them, accusing them of lying to God, in particular with Ananias, lying to the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, lying to God. And so Ananias uh, falls down dead. Later, his wife comes in. Peter questions her. Same response. She ends up falling down dead as well. And great fear uh, just filled the, the people and, and, and such. And, and the people are in awe of this. And it's important for us to glean from situations like that. Well, what are we going to glean from a couple of dead people that, you know, that lied? Well, their hypocrisy is something that we, even in our day, even though we don't see God, uh, you know, in, in, in chapter 5, we see an episode where God sends a message. He fires one across the bow in the church, and, uh, and it has its effect. It has a purifying effect on the believers. We don't see examples of this all over the place in the New Testament where God is striking down people for hypocrisy. We do see it as not a not normal thing. We do see it as something, even when Paul talks about the love feasts that the believers are having in Corinth, he talks about how some taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner have died. And so God does deal with that hypocrisy, that, um, you know, that, that uh, unwillingness to just be honest about, about our dealings as believers in that, and to instead put on a face or put on a show, as the word hypo- uh, hypocrisy ultimately speaks of. So in that context of the purity of the church in that moment where God demonstrates the importance of dealing with hypocrisy right away, in that midst, we, or in that context, we then pick up the next passage here in verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Uh, now, whether entirely or at least predominantly, uh, the works of the Holy Spirit in terms of miracles and healings and, and signs and wonders seem to be done primarily, again, maybe even entirely, through the apostles at this point. That will change. If, if that was the case, it's not going to always be the case. Uh, we will see that um, in the church in Corinth, which was very, very carnal, the, uh, uh, not the last place you'd expect to see the Holy Spirit gifting and doing miraculous things, but it would appear that uh, that all the gifts were in operation there in Corinth, uh, which tells us that it's it's just simply because the Holy Spirit distributes these gifts as he wills, as Paul would say at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. 
Um, it's, it's, there is something that the Holy Spirit is doing and when he chooses to give those giftings, but that doesn't discount the importance of holiness. Again, remember, Corinth may have had the gifts in operation, but Paul also had to rebuke that church and do a lot of correcting to make sure that they, uh, that, that what was happening in their midst by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, also found a place in their general testimony as believers. In other words, their lives should not be confusing in the light of what God is doing in their midst. And there should be a, a correlation there. There should be a natural flow of, of the moving of the Holy Spirit among believers who are holy and are, are seeking to, to walk separately with Jesus. Uh, they weren't, and God was gracious to both give them those gifts, but also to correct them and help them get on track through uh, Paul's teaching. Here in uh, Acts, right in the very beginning, even prior to all that, we have an example of where God purifies the church, and that pure church is a ready receptacle for the power of God in action. And we would do well to glean from that today. We, would, we should recognize the value of holiness and of walking in a way that pleases and blesses him. He may choose to give us a gifting, or he may choose to use us in a powerful way in the moment, even if we're not holy. He did that in Corinth. Um, his ways are higher than my ways. You know, I, I scratch my head at that. But on the other hand, you know, how, how do we know how holy we need to be for God to use us? You know, all of us are falling short, even as believers, in terms of our practical daily living. Thank God we're saved by grace through faith. But there's always the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, even after the moment of salvation. And so, we would recognize that even though we still struggle, even though we still battle the flesh, the desire is to daily take up our cross and follow after him, uh, to set aside ourselves, to let the self die, that we might live to Christ. Well, I mean, how again, how, how ready uh, are we to then serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit when we walk in purity? It's always the encouragement. It's always the admonition. And here we see it in action. And so many signs and wonders were done regularly. And uh, the word there is in the imperfect tense. It continues to be done through the apostles. Again, later on as the church grows, we'll see uh, God doing uh, amazing things in the power of the Holy Spirit through, uh, through lots of other believers besides just the apostles. But here it appears that they are the predominant primary way through which God is working in this way. They're all together in Solomon's portico. This is the same place where, uh, where Peter gave his second sermon after he and John were there with uh, the man who was lame from birth, and uh, and 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 Peter, uh, he was asking for alms, and Peter said, well, "Look, money we don't have, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk." And he not only rises up and walks, but he actually leaps. He's so full of joy at being able to walk now, and uh, and so Peter, as the people gather around, stunned at what just happened and amazed, Peter says, "Look, don't look at us as though there's some power or piety inherent to us." Uh, but rather, this is what was this was done by Jesus Himself, and it goes on to speak of how uh, they had crucified Him and and all of this. But now He's alive, and and so much of of the uh, of what we see in that early preaching is present there, and so that's where this happens again too. It apparently is something of a place where they would typically go at this stage, and so as they're there, uh, and as the power of God is present, working, and there's healings and. Even as it says at the end of the passage, uh, there, uh, we'll see that there are sick healed, there are unclean spirits cast out, and all of them are healed. 
Now, in the midst of all that, none of the rest, verse 13, dared to join them, the rest being those outside of the church, outside of the body of believers, but those who saw what was going on. Um, it may very well be that, um, that they stayed away and didn't want to become believers because they recognized the persecution that the early believers faced, Peter and John being one example, but you know, believers in general had to be sort of in hiding for the most part. In this large number gathered here, there was an opportunity for the, for the lost to hear and to see and to ultimately believe. But many kept at arm's length, uh, again, likely uh, at least in part because of fear of the Romans um, or of those who were Jews at that point, uh, ostrac- being ostracized by um, the Jewish leadership. And so there's likely a fear factor involved in some of that. Um, it's interesting, as the church uh, continues to grow and as it moves into the first and second century, um, we, we read some of the early writers during that time, people like Justin Martyr, who would uh, speak about how there was, this, um, there was this interesting sort of juxtaposition happening between Rome and Rome's people uh, during that period of time, because as persecution began to increase fervently against the Christians, um, on the one hand, you had those who had this bloodlust and wanted to see the Christians thrown to the lions because they just had this weird, sadistic kind of like just human nature, wanted to see this kind of thing happening for sport. But the average Roman was starting to wrestle with that idea a little bit because they, as the church grew and as more and more believers were in society and as as non-believers began to to recognize the character of the believers, the love they had for one another, the, uh, the way that they were good citizens in society, they were kind people and everything, they, there began to be this, and Justin Martyr again talks about this, others do as well, um, that the Roman citizens began to wrestle with this because now it wasn't just sort of faceless Christians being thrown to the lions, but rather these were now neighbors and people that maybe even in some sense they were friends with who were good people in terms of their behavior and their character and such. And they were scratching their heads like, why are they taking these people and throwing them to the lions? It just became this testimony to the world outside that eventually began to win them over. At this stage, the Christian faith is so new that uh, that it's gaining ground rapidly, but it is not as broadly accepted as it will be in the centuries to come. Ultimately, it becomes an accepted religion later on in the early 300s. But in this stage, there is the very beginning of the gospel beginning to go, and people are recognizing that there is, in fact, a cost to following Jesus, as he said there was. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised that there's a cost that comes with walking with Jesus. Our salvation is freely paid for by Jesus. But he does ask us now to walk as disciples of his, and so it becomes important to walk in obedience to him. Uh, Well, that comes at great cost. Certainly in their context, it came at a tremendous cost, life and death. Um, Some watching these videos uh, may be in a context where you know, to openly profess Christianity means to get arrested, means to be um, kicked out of your home or maybe, um, you know, turned over to the authorities or something. That still happens in this world, uh, even as it did in the first century. And so on the one hand, uh, the, those on the outside, by and large, it says none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Again, the people began to recognize the difference in their lives. And again, as time would go by, they would become more and more surprised at the persecution against these people that lived really exemplary lives. Um, you know, that you can't overstate how powerful a living testimony is 
you know, in, 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 in the process of somebody ultimately coming to faith. And so they were living out their faith, and, and people respected them for it, even though, you know, by and large, they didn't want to come to believe. Nevertheless, God continued to add to the church, even as he said in Acts chapter 2, he adds to the church daily. Well, here we see this as well, where more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And we will see this continued explosive growth of the church. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, too, uh, it would seem like a, just a, an insignificant detail to read over, but we now start to see women mentioned in, in terms of, uh, you know, just the, the cultural growth of the Christian faith there, uh, in society, I should say. Um, the gospel is, uh, has, has had such a potent impact on elevating women to equality with men in their standing with God. Um, in most religions, uh, I shouldn't say most, that's probably overstating it, but in, in certainly in some uh, major religious systems uh, and in certain parts of the world, uh, women are still viewed as being sort of subservient. Um, you know, they don't, uh, their say doesn't count like a, uh, like a man's would and that kind of a thing. The Christian faith did much to elevate women in society. As a matter of fact, in Christian circles, and let me go further back, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, uh, women figure prominently, which would never have happened in most of in most of these societies of that time. But with the Gospel, there's a great level grounding that happens. You know, the foot of the cross is equal for all people to stand on its level ground. And, uh, and you know, at one point, Paul even says, look, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, uh, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile in, in terms of uh, you know, the way it's expressed differently. But the idea that there is in Christ no longer this separating of, of ethnicities and men and women and all these different things. The gospel is powerful, both to save people for eternity, but also as a tremendous uh, bringer of equality among people. And so we see uh, women mentioned here among those who come to faith. And again, that was kind of an odd thing to include in the writings, except that it had already become kind of a normal thing. As a matter of fact, it's, it's not insignificant that it's Luke who's writing, or it's not ironic that it's Luke who's writing the book of Acts, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, where women figure most prominently among the four Gospels. And so, uh, and of course, Luke is a Gentile as well. And so, um, speaking of a a faith that is predominantly embraced by by Jews at this point, but yet nonetheless he, uh, as uh, as a Gentile, writes from a somewhat different perspective, but still includes uh, women, which would have been an odd thing in any cultural society at that time. Uh, not to make too big of a thing about it, but in some ways you almost can't make too big of a thing about it. Um, and so, uh, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick to the streets and laid them on cots and mats. Now, some have seen in that, by the way, and it might be too, reading too much into it. Um, it, it. It likely means one of two things, and I'll throw both things out there. One is that cots and mats just says whatever, could just simply mean whatever they had, you know, whatever they could find to bring people out into the streets in order that, uh, that they might be healed. They did it. Uh, some have seen in this that uh, cots and mats speaks of um, uh, and the original word, there's two different words for those two terms there, and, and one could speak of, of something that would typically not be afforded by those of, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a poor socioeconomic class. And so 
both uh, uh, like beds and, and the idea of being carried on something that was comfortable and ornate even and that kind of thing. And then also there were the cots or the sort of stretcher kinds of things that we often see in the Gospels, people carried to Jesus on. Uh, they were typically emblematic of, of not having much resource, being kind of poor. And so some have seen in this the possibility that uh, of what is at play being that there were some, you know, people from both, you know, from both ends of the economic spectrum, spectrum were brought out to be healed by the disciples. Or it may just mean that whatever means they had available to them, they brought people out on. Either one's a reasonable uh, understanding of that. Um, but they brought them out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Uh, and people uh, also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Um, so people brought this, the sick out that even if Peter uh, couldn't even touch them, maybe a shadow would cross a, a, over them and they might be healed. Now, it doesn't say that that, that happened, but or that people were necessarily healed by it, but I think the clear implication is that they were. Just technically speaking, it doesn't say that they were, but again, I, I think they likely were. I think that's why that's there, to help us to see that you know people had hope that even if just a shadow would pass on, they might be healed. Uh, and so this shadow, um, much like a simple touch from the Lord's hand or one of the disciples' hands, kind of becomes like a point of contact for faith and for people to believe that this is my moment to receive something glorious from the Lord. And 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 so, um, there, there, of course, you know, it's hard to point to that and not speak to some of the modern day abuses of that kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, probably many of you have watched quote-unquote Christian television, where various televangelists put their hands out and invite you to touch the TV with your hands, and that point of contact for faith will bring healing. And then, of course, you know, we want to finish the deal by having you sow your seed of faith and send money and all that kind of thing. So um, there is a biblical precedent upon which those ideas are sometimes purveyed. Um, however, the integrity of the two people in view could not be more different. There's Peter, and then there's these charlatans on TV. Um, so, you know, there, there, there is something to be said about the idea of a point of faith, a point of contact for faith. There's nothing magical about Peter's shadow, any more than there was anything magical about the garment that Jesus wore in Luke's gospel um, in chapter 8, where um, there's a woman that had an issue of uh, a flow of blood for 12 years. In other words, she had a continual menstrual period for 12 years. Uh, I'm a man. I can't speak to how awful that must be, but I have to imagine that would be pretty awful. Uh, also, interestingly, a girl uh, also um, who was 12 years old had uh, was in need of the Lord's coming to heal her in that too. And there, there's a 12-year connection there between the two. Um, this is another interesting study. I probably shouldn't have gone into that without going all the way into it, so I'll stop there. But, um, but anyway, so so as Jesus is going to this home to go heal this girl, um, this woman with the issue, the flow of blood, this issue of blood, touches the hem of his garment, thinking, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And virtue goes out from Jesus, and she is healed, and he stops and says, I felt power go out for me. Who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you, you know? But the lady stands there uh, stunned and, and sort of busted in her mind, but Jesus commends her for her faith. There's nothing magical about the hem of his garment. It was just that she believed that she would be healed by him, and, and just if she could just even touch his garment, 
so she believed uh, so strongly in, in his power to heal. Oh, for that kind of faith today when we find ourselves in those circumstances, right? Well, you know, uh, again, that was a point of contact for her faith. You know, you think in, in Acts chapter 19, um, you know, there's uh, Paul is walking down the way and people are just clamoring to him to be healed. And even if a handkerchief that touched him, that they might touch it, they might be healed by it and such. Um, you know, some of that is superstition on the part of some, no doubt, just even like it is today. But, you know, God also did honor that. You know, again, God is generous. He's not, he's not looking... Uh, to not do good for people. I mean, I'm not going to cross, uh, I'm not going to diminish uh, his sovereignty in choosing who to heal and not to heal. And I do think there are times when God chooses not to heal. Think of Paul himself, uh, messenger of Satan buffeted him. Three times he cried out to the Lord uh, you know, for deliverance from it. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is uh, made perfect in weakness. And so sometimes God doesn't heal. But a lot of times he does, and sometimes he is just asking us to believe. And I even believe to the point where if I could just reach out and just touch any part of what, even even the garment, you know, and that kind of faith. Um, you know, but, but if you're prone to sending in seeds to TV preachers, please stop. Don't do that. Give it to your church. You know, they'll, they'll do more with it than, they need it more than the guy on TV driving the Rolls Royce and the Ford Jets and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, but I digress pretty dramatically. So... Uh, anyway, so, um, and lastly, I'll point to verse 16 here, where it mentions that people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. You remember how Jesus told them to wait uh, until they were due to the power from on high, and then they would ultimately go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, right now they're still in Jerusalem, and they will be until the persecution under Saul really begins. Um, but nonetheless, word is getting out, and the gospel is spreading, and now people are even coming into Jerusalem in order to see the disciples and to see what God is doing and even that they might be healed themselves and that unclean spirits might be cast out, demons cast out of people. And so there is this power in the gospel and influence that is continuing to grow as, uh, uh, as, as, as time goes on. And so uh, next time as we uh, go into the book of Acts, we'll see that while this is all happening, once again, Satan is not without a witness there as well. Uh, even as God is not without a witness, Satan is there seeking to stop the show. And so we'll see uh, the apostles, not just Peter and John, but the, the 12 now uh, ultimately are arrested. And, uh, and they stand up again and give a great testimony. And as we continue to move through the next couple of chapters, this chapter into chapter 6, into chapter 7, um, chapter 7 being kind of a transition now into that time of persecution that begins to happen in, in much, much larger terms. But through the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, we will see uh, again how God is working in the church, in this young church, beginning to help them understand how to navigate, how to do things, how to take care of the people and such. And so we'll continue on that. But um, thanks again for watching. And if you have any questions or thoughts or anything and you want to uh, share those, please feel free to do that uh, on our YouTube channel where you're probably watching this now. Uh, if you are listening to the audio podcast, uh, or if you'd like to listen to the audio podcast, you can go to my personal website at parsonspad.com, and you can watch these videos, you can comment, and you can also subscribe to the audio version of these videos. Uh, and, uh, of course, you can always go to our church's website as well, where you can email me. Uh, you can also email me from my own website, but uh, if you would like to email as well. And uh, as I always say, I love the interactions. I love to just kind of go back and forth with you all about things. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just great. So thanks for watching. And, and, um, and uh, let me just pray us out. And then um, 
if we don't post again before Christmas, wish you all a very merry and blessed Christmas, remembering the birth of our Savior, uh, came into the world as God's great, blessed gift to us, something completely undeserved, and uh, but yet nonetheless, it is the gift that makes all the difference, the person of Jesus, who ultimately came into the world to die for our sins. And so, Father, we thank you at this time of year as we look upon the person of Christ, we look upon your Son and recognize how you loved us so much that you gave him, that if we would believe in him, that we'd not ever uh, perish but have everlasting life. And so thank you that in Christ we receive the ultimate gift of right relationship with you and all that that brings with it. We thank you, Lord, that even though sinners such as us can have hope, a living hope, a for sure hope, uh, a hope that we know is secure and kept in heaven for us who are kept ultimately by the power of your Holy Spirit. So thank you for this. We also pray that the Holy Spirit would not only fill our hearts in the sense of sealing us to that day of redemption, but ultimately that he would empower us, that he would fall upon us and give us power to do those things that you call us to do, uh, to, have a, uh, you know, to have a voice, as it were, to speak the good news, to have boldness behind that voice, clearly sharing the gospel, to uh, have the courage to stand firm when the world seeks to want to just crush in against us and against the message that we bring. Father, we don't want to be violent against the world, but we do want to have the wherewithal to stand uh, in the evil day, ultimately uh, uh, equipped with the armor of God and and certainly with the message like heralds with the good news. And so, uh, Father, we thank you. We praise you for these things. We thank you for your word, and we ask you just to let it have its uh, place and power in our lives, changing us from the inside out, washing us clean and Uh, in terms of our worldviews, our thinkings, our behaviors, and all of those things uh, that the flesh seeks to still sort of drive us with. But Father, we thank you that no longer are we just in the flesh, but rather we also have your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we love you, we thank you and praise you, and ask you to go before us in the days ahead until we see Jesus face to face when he comes for us. And Father, again, we just want to thank you for this time of year where we, as believers around the world, just celebrate the coming of your Son. We love you, we thank you, and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.